0: Well, our scripture for today comes to us from Leviticus chapter 25, and I'm going to start at verse 8, and um, I might take us through the end of the chapter, so hold on tight. You shall count off seven weeks of years seven times, seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. And you shall hollow the fiftieth year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property, and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a Jubilee for you. You shall not sow, or reap the aftergrowth, or harvest the unpruned vines. For it is a Jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of Jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the Jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price, and if the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price. For it is certain that a number of harvests are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall observe my statutes and faithfully keep my ordinances, so that you may live on the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live on it securely. Should you ask, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather our crop, I will order my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it will yield a crop for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating from the old crop until the ninth year. When its produce comes in, you shall eat the old. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. If any one of your kin falls into difficulty and sells a piece of property, then the next of kin shall come and redeem it, shall redeem what the relative has sold. If the person has no one to redeem it, but then prospers and finds sufficient means to do so, the years since its sale shall be computed and the difference shall be refunded to the person to whom it was sold and the property shall be returned. But if there are not sufficient means to recover it, What was sold shall remain with the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and the property shall be returned. If anyone sells a dwelling house in a walled city, it may be redeemed until a year has elapsed since its sale. The right of redemption shall be one year. If it is not redeemed before a full year has elapsed, the house that is in a walled city shall pass in perpetuity to the purchaser, throughout the generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee, but houses and villages that have no walls around them shall be classed as open country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites shall forever have the right of redemption of the houses and the cities belonging to them. Such property as may be redeemed from the Levites Houses sold in a city belonging to them shall be released in the Jubilee, because the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the open land around their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession all the time. If any of your kin fall into difficulty and become dependent on you, you shall support them. They shall live with you as though resident aliens." don't take interest in advance or otherwise make a profit off of them but fear your god let them live with you you shall not lend them your money at interest taken in advance or provide them food at a profit i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt to give you the land of canaan to be your god if any who are dependent on you become so impoverished that they sell themselves to you you shall not make them serve as slaves. They shall remain with you as hired or bound laborers. They shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then they and their children with them shall be free from your authority. They shall go back to their own family and return to their ancestral property. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves are sold. You shall not rule over them with harshness, but shall fear your God. As for the male and female slaves whom you may have, it is from the nations around you that you may acquire them. You may also acquire them from among the aliens residing with you and from their families that are with you who have been born in your land. And they may be your property. You may keep them as a possession for your children after you, for them to inherit as property. These you may treat as slaves, but as for your fellow Israelites, no one shall rule over the other with harshness. If resident aliens among you prosper, and if any of your kin fall into difficulty with one of them and sell themselves to an alien or to a branch of the alien's family, after they have sold themselves, they have the right of redemption. One of their brothers may redeem them or their uncle or their uncle's son may redeem them, or anyone of their family who is out of their own flesh may redeem them, or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They shall compute with the purchaser the total from the year when they sold themselves to the alien until the year of jubilee. The price of the sale shall be applied to the number of years. The time they were with the owner shall be rated as the time of a hired laborer. If many years remain, they shall pay for their redemption in proportion to the purchase price. And if few years remain until the Jubilee year, they shall compute thus. According to the years involved, they shall make payment for their redemption. As a laborer hired by the year, they shall be under the alien's authority, who shall not, however, rule with harshness over them in your sight. And if they have not been redeemed in any of these ways, They and their children with them shall go free in the jubilee year. For to me, the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you so much for long passages of legal code. And God, thank you for the stories that are buried within those sentences. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate whatever parts of your word you would have us hear this morning. And God, I pray that this would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone still with me after that? I spent my first year preaching, y'all you, you are lucky, I, I spent my first year preaching um, in Montana and I, I went through the entire book of Leviticus <laughs> and I called the series, the, series the, uh, the most boring book in the Bible and so every week it was the most boring book in the Bible, part one, the most boring book in the Bible, part two, it was an okay series. <laughs> by, by chapter 12 I had people saying, are you going to go all the way to the end? <laughs> Or, how many chapters are in Leviticus? You only get one, so. (laughs) Did everyone see what President Biden did recently? Student loan forgiveness? Anyone? Yeah. I saw it as well. you know, if you, if you didn't, a couple weeks ago, his administration announced $10,000 in forgiveness for almost every borrower of student loans who still owe on their balance. And actually, I read last night, in some cases, um, if you've paid off the balance recently, uh, you can actually get a refund for that. So that, that's part of the program as well. They also announced a $20,000 forgiveness if you came from a low-income household and had to uh, or did receive Pell Grants to attend college. I was shocked by this, honestly. Um, I kind of laughed when I saw it, because I, d- I didn't think it would ever happen. I didn't think that an American president would would do something like that. And it's still kind of crazy to me. Full disclosure, I, before we get into this, you know, I'm Uh, The Biden administration's policy directly affects me, Uh, and after speaking with the student loan officer last week, there's almost no doubt that I'll have $20,000 of my remaining balance forgiven. I'm shocked by this. Um, You know, it's a a huge help. It's great. But I I just want to disclose that, that I'm not separate from this whole situation. You know, I... I say all this to say that I saw the announcement, my mom and dad texted me, and I went online to actually celebrate this, because <laughs> it, it's a great moment, I thought. And I was so excited, but I soon found that so many people were upset by this decision. And they had any number of reasons. You know, some people were yelling about why their mortgage wasn't also forgiven in this, which I thought was funny. But their, their general concern was that uh, Perhaps the American government is promoting irresponsibility among its citizens. And there was frustration around that. You know, and I can kind of understand that. Other people thought that the government didn't go far enough in their forgiveness efforts. You know, I thought that was a pretty good point too, especially considering the number of black and brown Americans that owe much more proportionally in student debt than do white students. For the same education it's a good point too that 10k or 20k sounds really nice to someone like me because it represents a significant amount of what I owe left but if it was just say 2% of my remaining balance it may not seem like that much and so I found that when I went online and everyone was fighting about it so I, I chose not to celebrate But then the Christians got involved, you know, and then I got dragged into it as well. Did you all see the memes that were going around? I I may have shared a couple of them. Some people tagged me in some of their memes. Uh, Maybe one of my favorites was uh, Jesus. It was an old painting of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it said something like, "Uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 was a slap in the face to every single person that brought their lunch that day. And whether you disagree or not, I just, I think it's funny, <laughs> you know. There were, there were others, I won't touch on them, but uh, one of the many reasons I love the internet is after these things happen, just the creativity uh, that you see in people, uh, whether they're off-base or on-base. I also know these weren't always shared in jest, that there's a very serious issue at heart here, and there's, there's a conflict for a reason, you know, I, I think I've... I've learned enough in my life to know that often <laughs> in these conflicts there's a question that's being asked. There's something that's at stake for both sides. And what I heard being asked at least in the Christian, you know, back and forth on my social media was this. What does the Bible really say about debt forgiveness? How should Christians think about this issue? And I tried the best I could to investigate. Again, uh, I benefit from this, so maybe my view is tainted. You shouldn't be surprised to learn that, at least on the surface, the Bible is apparently as conflicted about this issue as we are in America today. Pastor Sarah pointed out last week that Scripture often engages with both sides of an issue. Uh, Sometimes the text can preach against itself. Sometimes the text can speak in favor of itself. I've heard a lot of commentators call this a kind of deeper conversation that's going on between the texts. It's a dialogue. So I just want to lay out the two sides that I found. And I want you to know that I'm generalizing and I'm paraphrasing and we don't have enough time to do a deep dive into all this, but here's what I dug up. There's, of course, on one side of the conversation, the Levitical law code that we read from this morning. This text seems to outline the way in which moral slash economic obligations are to be repaid. Let's say a person, for whatever reason, can no longer afford essential items, food, whatever it is, to go on living their lives. And let's say they have to sell their property uh, in, in this instance. Well the text encourages and even commands that someone in the family help them buy the property back so that it's kept within the family and they don't lose it. But let's say they don't have family, well then they have a chance to uh, succeed in the economy after selling their property. And thus they have a chance to redeem their property back at a time when they are able. they do that at a rate that we'll call fair rental value for those that they sold it to. So they have to, do, they have to pay something, but they don't have to give everything away. But let's say that they don't succeed when they enter into the economy and they can't purchase their property back. Well, the Jubilee Code seems to ensure that no Israelite is being made a slave by other Israelites. It ensures that no one is, you know, to use the expression, up the creek for the rest of their life without a paddle, because they fell on hard times. Their family and the generations after them don't have to suffer because they don't have an inheritance. Jubilee in this way is a kind of social and societal safety net. The law provides that after selling something so valuable because they are desperate to survive, A person does not have to worry that they're going to lose that property forever. It will be returned to them. Or we could say their debt has been forgiven. They get to start over. It's a clean slate. In the meantime, they can focus on doing everything they can do to get their property back before the Jubilee because, last I checked, no one loves being in debt. It would be better to not have to wait for the law to be enacted on their behalf. I took a couple of courses in seminary that explored the law codes of the ancient Near East. And I'm going to tell you up front that I I learned just enough to be very, very dangerous. So do do your own research. But one of the things that uh, the professor said so much that I almost got tired of hearing him say it was, He just had this refrain, you know, guys, the laws were not written for no reason. The laws were not written for no reason. He would just say it and say it and say it. And then if you asked him for the reasons behind the law, he would always tell these really, really long stories. Thankfully, I love long, long stories, as many of you know. (laughs) But his point was that there's always a larger story behind the law, and it's important that we find it and we try to tell it faithfully and so the story or at least the theory behind the law code that we read this morning is that a law like this is developed not just because god said so though that is the refrain throughout leviticus but it's developed in response to the decline of ancient near east cultures who saddled too many people in their population with too much debt It comes from an understanding of the negative effects that debt can have on a community. In other words, the Jubilee command to return property and lands to their rightful owners, to forgive all debts, moral and economic obligations every seven years, arises as both a critique and an antidote to economic systems that privilege what I've heard William Barber II call creditocracies, Or systems that prefer and appear to thrive when individuals within the population are in debt for as much of their life as possible. That refrain throughout Leviticus and other parts of scripture, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That refrain reminds the Israelites of their history and their ancestors. They had once lived in a state where they were economic slaves and they had vowed to try not to duplicate that in the promised land. Leviticus 25 is one of their attempts to construct a different kind of society, one that doesn't allow for debt to enslave the majority of the population. And I think it's brilliant really if you think about when it was written and what they're trying to do at such an early time in their civilization. It's their ancient way of acknowledging that sometimes the ledger just has to be cleared so that we can start things over. They understand that among humankind there were some things a person should never have to lose. That being their land, their wealth, their property, their dignity, their ability to make a life and a living. If things got that bad, the community would have to stick together anyway. And so it's as much about discharging burdensome debt for individuals as it is about protecting the property and the dignity, and the rights, and the community of all of God's people. This isn't unlike bankruptcy laws in our country, but I promise you I'm not drawing a one-to-one comparison here. Bankruptcy laws allow for individuals of a specific economic circumstance to clear their ledgers, so to speak, every few years. Laws like this aren't uncommon in human culture, but here in America we have an interesting limit to it. A lot of people online pointed this out. It's almost in every case that bankruptcy does not allow for student loans to be discharged. In fact, I think I read somewhere that student loans were permanent debt for individuals until George Bush introduced the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program nearly 20 years ago. Now the other side of the argument leviticus 25 and the verses that support it are not the only story in scripture paul says very clearly pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed and the psalmist says the wicked borrow and do not repay but the righteous give generously Even the writer of Ecclesiastes, who's always going on about how everything is vapor and nothing really matters and blah, 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 even she says that it's better to not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. She wants to point us toward deep fidelity in our life together. And so there seems to be a real concern among other writers of the Bible and those who use them for the sake of argumentation, that irresponsibility should not be encouraged or rewarded in any society. And I think almost all of us can agree with that, right? We don't want to encourage irresponsibility. We don't want to distrust people. We want to be able to trust them to participate and do their part and to not withhold the gifts that they're able to give and should give back to the community. Both the Old and New Testament take this very seriously, I think, and they reflect this sentiment in a couple of stories. Do any of you remember Achan from Joshua 7? Remember that story? I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Achan. He was the one who was commanded by Joshua, the leader of the army, to not keep any of the treasure that they found in Jericho for a spoil of war. He said that all the plunder was to go to the temple and to be given as a gift to God who led them, To the promised land. But in Achan's own words, he says, I sinned and I disobeyed the Lord God of Israel. While we were in Jericho, I saw a beautiful Babylonian robe, 200 pieces of silver, and a gold bar that weighed the same as 50 pieces of gold. And I wanted them for myself. So I took them. I dug a hole under my tent and hid the silver, the gold, and the robe. Joshua has him killed for this. You'll recognize a similar story from Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira who withhold some of their own wealth from the sale of property instead of giving everything to the new community of Jesus followers that are forming in Jerusalem. God, in this case, it's implied, strikes the couple dead. And there are a lot of different takes on these, but one that I, I found this week is... Is that it says if the writers of these two texts want us to know that this sort of greed, this sort of irresponsibility of an individual, this sort of withholding behavior should not be tolerated in any community because it threatens the community. It threatens the community's existence. And so these myths are asking us to consider our own responsibility in any given situation. Again, the psalmist says the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. So the other side of the biblical argument doesn't necessarily disagree with debt forgiveness, and that's an important thing to note. The other side of the biblical argument just wants to remind us, with the fear of God almost, that under no circumstances can we have a functioning society in a population that is completely irresponsible to their debts and moral obligations. We can't encourage irresponsible behavior. And so you might be wondering, Pastor Garrett, what is the right answer? Or maybe you're wondering, is he going to wrap this up already? <laughs> i got a lunch to get to. Between both of these sides, I found a greater concern in the text. There's always this larger concern for God's people, for the community of God's people, for their freedom from bondage, whatever it is, for their liberation, their collective and communal thriving. Sometimes that's liberation from the empire, the oppressive nation. Sometimes it's liberation from our own self-imposed bonds of sin, when we don't behave responsibly, when we don't do as we know we should do, but instead do the thing that we know we shouldn't do. As Paul says, this is what God is always up to, freeing us from these things and liberating us for flourishing in life together. And I also think that that is Jesus's concern. Love each other, he says, as I have loved you. This is his way of summarizing all the law and all the prophets, including the verses we've read this morning. We're always searching for the right answer. We're always searching for the justification, the way to prove our authority. And we do this, I think, because we're overly concerned with our individual lives, with our own opinions, with our own sense of security. And that's what so much of our scouring of Scripture is nowadays. It's about our individual needs and desires. It's about proving someone wrong. It's about standing on the higher ground. And I think it has so very little, if anything, to do with the larger community sometimes. And so maybe the right answer is that it would be better if we stopped trying to find the biblical argument that was right and started instead asking what is best for our community right now? What do God's people need? Maybe instead of debt forgiveness is right or wrong, and how can I prove that theoretically, maybe if we listened to those who were struggling with their debt, student debt or otherwise, Maybe if we tried to take in some of that information, if we looked at the number of people who were allowed to take on debts that they couldn't ever possibly repay, if we looked at the incentives of those handing out loans, and if we thought collectively of ways to make this better for all of us, maybe that process would produce for us a right answer, a biblical answer. It might be better if we stopped thinking that we had the power to change other people's minds by finding another verse to quote. It might be better if we stopped trying to get everyone to think like us. If we stopped telling another anecdote, excuse me, another anecdote to someone who wasn't listening, just waiting to speak. It might be better if we stopped fighting with our individual beliefs And started thinking and wondering and entering into conversations with a kind of holy love and curiosity and a concern for all of god's people for the community if we devoted ourselves to the community's flourishing and not just our own not just what was good for us if we did that i think we'd find our answer let's pray Good and loving God, thank you for today. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for dialogue and conversation. Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts. Help us to turn away from our own concerns, God, and to focus on your community. In Jesus' name, amen.